This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, have the relatives of dead soldiers been targeted by phone hackers? Unbelievable. It's disgusting. The news order of just purely taking advantage of people's grief to sell newspapers. It's just disgraceful. And Liam Fox tells us he wants to stay at the MOD till 2015. I would very much like to continue and see the reforms through. I would like nothing better. BFBS. Headlines. The Royal British Legion has dropped the news of the world as a campaign partner after claims the tabloid may have hacked the phones of bereaved service families. The Daily Telegraph says the relatives' numbers were found in the files of a private investigator. Sainsbury's is among the other firms who've now dropped ads from the news of the world. In Scotland, police are investigating evidence given at the trial of the politician Tommy Sheridan, who was jailed for perjury. Former News of the World editor Andy Coulson told the court there was no culture of phone hacking at the paper. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, is rejecting accusations the MOD failed to understand the risks arising from the decision to leave Britain without an aircraft carrier for nearly 10 years. The National Audit Office says the Strategic Defence and Security Review has created significant levels of operational and cost uncertainty. And hundreds of Harry Potter fans are in central London, hoping to catch a glimpse of the stars at the world premiere of the last film in the series. Fans have come from Canada, Sweden and Norway to see part two of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. The News of the World has been one of the most vocal supporters the military could have had, giving loud public backing to the charity Help for Heroes and campaigning for changes to the military covenant, which makes the latest allegation in the phone hacking scandal even more shocking. It's claimed relatives of service personnel killed in Iraq and Afghanistan may have had their mobile phones targeted by the private investigator working for the News of the World. Reports claim some of their numbers have been found in Glenn Mulcair's files. The Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards, says if true, it's outrageous. First of all, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves because there's a police investigation ongoing and we need to see the results of that. But I have to say, if these actions are proved to have been verified, I'm appalled and find it quite disgusting. Hazel Hunt's son, Richard, died in an explosion in Afghanistan. It's bad enough as it is having lost our sons, but to know that somebody would want to actually hack into it and and try and get what I can only assume would be some sort of angle on the story is disgusting. You know, you you should uh, approach people directly or not at all, and to do anything such as they've been accused of is completely underhand. Well, on the line from Westminster is Kevin Hart from the Royal British Legion, which has had a close campaigning relationship with the News of the World. Thanks for your time today, Kevin. Good afternoon. Um, I understand that, ca- that that campaigning relationship has been dropped. It has been suspended um, for the period while these allegations are being investigated. And, of course, the Royal British Legion is uh, joining other people in calling for a full judicial inquiry into what's been going on. And what has the reaction been at the Royal British Legion to what you've understood? Well, amongst colleagues, um, just one of shock. Uh, We all just can't believe that uh, this could have been going on. And if it's true, uh, you know, we're all all absolutely horrified. Um, Obviously, our first concern is for the bereaved families who were helping through our um, independent inquest advice service. And 
were just very, very concerned that they're opening up their papers this morning and seeing this and, and yet another thing to add to, their, to the pressure that they're under. And just tell me a bit more about what you'd achieved in partnership with the News of the World. Well, we'd worked with the News of the World, along with other media organisations, uh, in the campaign to put the military covenant onto the statute book. And we were just about to start a campaign, uh, which we're running at the moment. We were just going to start to work with the News of the World on the role of the, 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 on the, the, role of the chief coroner, trying to save the role of the chief coroner, which again is something that bereaved families are very, very concerned about. All of which, which must make today's allegations even harder to take. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're, as I say, we, we are in a, a state of shock and uh, it, it, is, it has caused us a great deal of concern and you know, for, for the bereaved families, the pressure on them is just immense. I just want you to listen now to the reaction from some troops currently serving in Afghanistan. I think it's unbelievable that at a time where somebody's going through the worst week of their lives... Is disgusting. The news of the world have just purely taken advantage of people's grief to sell newspapers. It's just disgraceful. I think it'll certainly make people more cautious about their personal security. And my views on journalists, I think it's, it's quite low. Now, Kevin, you've had a very close personal relationship with some of those bereaved relatives yeah. helping them with the inquest process. Can anything actually be done to repair the damage of these allegations? Well, um, that's not really for, for, for us to do in terms of the, the actual allegations. Hopefully the inquiry will, will, will be uh, quite thorough. Um, in terms of the work that we're going to do is we need to go to the, we're going to go to the families and give them the support that we can, be it um, any, any specific legal advice to go on and get uh, solicitors, etc., but just general pastoral care as well, just to pick them up. Can you see yourselves working with the news of the world again? Well, it depends on what the result of the inquiry is. If, if, if the, the inquiry um, uh, shows that these allegations are untrue, then we would, we would look at it again at that time. But at the moment, let's, um, let's you know, wait for the inquiry to, to, to be held and, and hopefully um, it, will, it will emerge that these allegations were not untrue. But for the moment, we are, as I say, we are, we're just in a state of shock at the moment. I can understand uh, that. Um, and I also understand that at the moment you do advertise with the News of the World. Will that change? Uh, we will be uh, looking at the um, advertisements. Uh, we are pulling. We are we're looking at the uh, News International advertisements as well. But for the moment, we are um, disassociating ourselves with the News of the World. All right, Kevin Hart from the Royal British Legion. Thank you very much for your thank time you very today. Much. Thank you. Well, with me in the studio is BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Hello. And um, what's caused this change in public opinion towards phone hacking? Public loved it at one time, you know. Because they like the salacious the, details you get oh, out of absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, uh, celebrities, politicians, footballers, Prince Charles, uh, his telephone call to Camilla before they were married, etc. People loved it. They're all over the papers. Read it in detail. But then came, for example, the discussion that we've just been, uh, been having. Uh, the idea of getting into the grief of... Uh, the service people's families. So is it who it's about, really? It's the fact it's that who what it, it is, is and about. who it's about. It is who it's about. And also there's another aspect of this. It is disturbing, isn't it, that the police who are there to safeguard our, uh, uh, the way we live, it may be that some police officers were selling mobiles, the mobile numbers, to the representatives of the, uh, of the news of the world. That disturbs our whole equilibrium in 
You just know, seems to get, it seems bad, and then it just seems to get worse, doesn't it? It's going to get much worse. It's going to get much worse as we find out who else has been hacked. We don't really care, you know, if somebody's working on the West End stage, for example, and we get, we, we hear that her telephone's been hacked. So what? That's the chance you have to take when you're earning that sort of money. But this is quite different. Some guy has given his life, his parents, his wife, his children, their mobiles are being hacked into. That's a different way of life, and that's a reflection on society, not just on the news of the world. All right, Christopher, stay with us. This is SITREP on BFBS. Liam Fox has been Defence Secretary for 14 months now, but there's been little opportunity for him to catch his breath since he arrived at the MOD. Thrown immediately into last year's defence review, he had to fight off attempts to impose even bigger cuts in his budget. While working on drawdown in Afghanistan, he's had to find the resources for the operation in Libya. And he's still trying to sort out the problems inside the Ministry of Defence, with a report this week setting out how it's lost track of £6 billion worth of assets. So there was a lot to talk about when I spoke to Liam Fox for SITREP and I started by asking him about the pace of work inside the MOD. Well, certainly it's um, not quiet. We've uh, had uh, a fairly difficult hand dealt to us by the economic legacy we had plus the global economic picture and the global security picture. So there are a lot of challenges. That doesn't mean that the department um, can back away from its own challenge for reform. And I know it does look as though we are tackling a lot of things simultaneously, but we have limited time to get them right. So um, I'm hugely grateful to the patience of both my military and civilian staff uh, for being willing to stick with us during what is a difficult but very necessary period. Prime Minister has announced what he's called a modest drawdown of troop numbers in Afghanistan for 2012. Are you confident that we're on track, that enough progress is being made on the ground to meet that deadline for the withdrawal of combat troops by 2015? Well, I was in Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago, and there's no doubt that on the ground the security picture is very much better than it has been. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, in line with that, very fortunately, the number of fatalities and casualties that we have taken has fallen this year compared to last year. It's not necessarily yet irreversible, but I think there's sufficient uh, grounds for confidence in both that diminution of the capability of the insurgency and the improved capability of the ANSF for us to believe that we can make a modest reduction uh, in light of the progress made on the ground. Long term, do you see negotiations with the Taliban the only way to secure lasting peace in Afghanistan? Well, ultimately, there will have to be a political settlement. And it's for the government of Afghanistan to identify those elements uh, who are reconcilable to the model set out in the Afghan constitution and supported by the international community. There are likely, as in most insurgencies, to be a number of those who will come to the conclusion that they cannot win. And uh, the quicker they come to that conclusion, the better. But there are also likely to be a number who remain irreconcilable, who have to be dealt with by uh, military means. Uh, I hope that as the political process, the governance process picks up and as reconstruction and development take uh, have greater momentum that the people of Afghanistan will realise that we are there not uh, as invaders but liberators. 
Turning to Libya, the criticism is that there is no exit strategy and that there's a stalemate. Well, I don't think you could describe it as a stalemate because we went in with the potential humanitarian uh, disaster that may have been Benghazi. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, we have prevented the wholesale um, slaughter of the Libyan people by the regime, whether it's in Brega or in the east or Misrata in the west. Um, and I, I think that when you look at where the relative forces are in the um, mountains, we've seen big advances made by the opposition forces. We've seen Arab nations willing to come in financially to support them. So I think that it's far from being a stalemate. Now, against that, you have to place the fact that there are natural limitations on what you can actually achieve through air power alone, and we always accepted that. And we made our own problem, uh, if anything, more difficult by the fact that we simply refused to accept um, civilian casualties. So we used precision weaponry, which is more expensive, uh, and limited the target sets that we could look at. So I think that we have uh, shown that in answering our international responsibilities, we not only prevented the slaughter of civilians, but we have been willing to minimize civilian damage while at the same time undermining the capabilities of the regime. So I certainly wouldn't describe it uh, as a stalemate. Is it possible to put a timeline on it? Well, ask Colonel Gaddafi because the rate-limiting step now is his unwillingness to face reality and recognize that the game is up. And then for those around him to ask themselves how long they're willing to invest in a busted flush. No stalemate, you say, but the Prime Minister has been very clear that Gaddafi must go. How do you see a conclusive end to the situation in Libya? Well, I think that those around Colonel Gaddafi will have to recognise that backing him is a pointless exercise um, and that ultimately the people of Libya are increasingly clearly wanting to be able to control their own destiny. Whether that is Gaddafi leaving the country, whether there is some sort of uh, settlement done with um, whatever uh, new regime will come into place in Libya, is to an extent for the Libyan people themselves to decide. And let's go back to the original reason that we were there, which is the protection of the civilian population of Libya. It is not for us to impose a particular type of government upon them but we have always said it's for the people of Libya themselves to take those decisions. You've had warnings from a number of senior military figures that we could struggle to maintain simultaneous operations in Libya and Afghanistan beyond the autumn. Are you sure they're wrong? I've had a very close look with the service chiefs at um, our capabilities in extending um, beyond the autumn, and I'm very clear that we can. And it's very important that we send out an unambiguous signal that we understand why we are in Libya, we understand the tasks that we've been set in terms of protecting the civilian population, and that we lack neither the political resolve nor the military means to be successful. And I think to send any other signal would be to give comfort only to Colonel Gaddafi and undermine our own efforts. On spending, the next defence spending planning round has been delayed. Where are you at at balancing the books? It must be an incredibly frustrating time for you. Well, we knew that we were going to inherit, um, after the election, a massive unfunded liability in the Ministry of Defence. Actually, it was considerably bigger um, than even we feared before the election. And that's not going to be eliminated in a short time because of the long time uh, periods involved in uh, procurement 
uh, and in uh, defence spending generally. So we will eliminate it over time. What I want to do is to get a system in place that guarantees us maximal predictability in our budget so that we're not going from um, one year to another, never really having any certainty in, in that. And that's what I'm currently involved in discussions with my uh, other colleagues in Whitehall about whether we can achieve that because um, every year the tradition has been that we get to the last week of the uh, planning round and then make drastic changes. And I think we need to think through on a rolling five and ten year basis the sort of uh, plans we have for manpower, for equipment, exactly what uh, outcomes we uh, want to achieve um, and design the processes accordingly. So I, what I want is to do what I think has been missing in recent years, which is to take a, go a long, hard look at the MOD uh, as a business rather than simply looking at operations. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, if we were in the private sector, we'd be the third biggest company in the FTSE. Um, and I think that it's time that uh, the chief executive and the senior management devoted as much time to the core business as it, did to, as it does to what's happening in operations. And finally, uh, if I may just ask you a personal question, um, are you enjoying being Defence Secretary? I, um, despite how difficult the tasks are that we've faced and the level of reform, I can honestly say to you I get up in the morning and uh, I'm so grateful um, to have the chance to have the job that I do. It's a particular um, honour to do it. I can't say it's easy and I can't say there are not frustrating times. Um, but I get the opportunity to work with uh, not only some uh, extremely capable uh, people in the civilian side of the MOD, but I've also had the opportunity to meet very extensively uh, around the world uh, our armed forces. Um, and there are very few things that can give you greater pride in your job than that. So from that I can take you'd like no other job between now and 2015? Well, I, I would very much like to um, continue and see the reforms through because I think one of the problems tends to be um, that there's insufficient attention given to the boring bits. And that is not the announcements of the reforms, but actually seeing through the reforms themselves um, and, and, and managing through that process and ensuring that the transition happens. So uh, I would like nothing better than to get the opportunity to do that. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, well, Christopher Lee is still with me. Uh, Christopher Liam Fox says he wants to stay at the MOD for the long haul, see through the Afghan drawdown, internal reform. Do you think his wish will be granted? Well, nobody in the Cabinet, at the Cabinet table, wants the job anyway, so he better stay there. <laughs> He's got a very good reputation, um, and one of the problems of the MOD is that you need somebody at the top like that who's going to be there for some time. You don't want it to turn like a Minister of Transport. You get a new one every nine months. So what's, that's what's, you say his reputation is very good. What's, what's liked about him? What's he, what's he doing well? Or what are the people saying? Uh, a form of Defence Secretary said to me once that uh, your task is to be rather like, are you any good in bed, is to be, are you any good in Cabinet? Uh, <laughs> and, and that's what he is. He's very good in Cabinet. He's willing to stick his neck out. And now he's got really the format that he's got to take him through. His biggest task is 2015. His task, which is the next general election also, his task between now and then is to make sure that there is a defence spending increase in 2014. If there isn't, mm -hmm. his whole strategic defence and security um, uh, operation falls apart.
for example, you know, there was a report this week saying, well, you know, the carriers, they still don't know how much they, they're going to cost if, if they have them. We're not sure about the cost of this and cost of that. The important thing, if there is no more money in 2014, 2015, then Liam Fox will have failed. So maybe he goes just the year before. Indeed. And on drawdown, only 500 troops, more troops uh, next year. That means there's a heck of a lot of people to get out by 2015. Well, there is, but it's, it's not that... That bit's not so difficult because we'll have about 9,000 in and you bring out... But you're not bringing out any combat troops. And they're so supposedly the last to go. I've always thought that the last people to go will be the sort of uh, uh, force protection uh, mm. uh, troops because people who are doing training, you, you've got to leave them in there. Biggest problems going on there, I mean, he was talking about it's up to the people of Libya, it's up to the people of Afghanistan. Afghanistan, Afghanistan Parliament, there are 249 MPs, we'd call them. Yesterday... They were punching each other in the throat in the parliament. 200 of those MPs are against Karzai. There's the fundamental problem. In Afghanistan, the traditional way of settling arguments is through violence. And the fear is, and it must be the fear of the military, let's get the security right in the next two years and reduce the possibility of returning to the traditional way of settling problems in, in Afghanistan. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come this week, HMS York is heading home. The man will also we've missed fresh milk and British bread. <laughs> so behind that, of course, is our family, I must say. During his visit to Afghanistan this week, the Prime Minister announced a new initiative to develop Afghan military leaders. The President and I have been discussing our plan to build an Afghanistan Sandhurst, a model academy for training the Afghan army officers of the future that will form the backbone of your already successful army. But it's not the first time British forces have been called upon to help develop leadership skills in a foreign army. More than 10 years after our intervention in Sierra Leone, military mentors are still helping to train a new generation of homegrown officers. On the line is Colonel Jamie Martin, who's the commander of IMAT, the International Military Assistance Training Team. Colonel Martin, thanks for your time today. Uh, before this training programme started, what was the state of Sierra Leone's forces? Um, hi, Kate. Good afternoon. Well, the IMAT training program um, started in about 2001-2002, at which stage Sierra Leone was, of course, emerging from the end of 20 years of civil war, uh, a period of really vicious fighting between rival tribes and political groups. There had been a number of coups, some of those led by the army, uh, and so the forces, uh, the Sierra Leone forces in 2002, were a a pretty ragtag mixture of soldiers, Uh, and of rebels, many of whom had been child soldiers, uh, who were being reintegrated uh, and put together. So they were in a a pretty bad state, really, Uh, unstructured, unbalanced, untrained, unfunded. And IMAT, over the years, with help from others, uh, have helped to put them back on their feet. And what kind of difference was there in training the rank-and-file soldiers, the people you're describing, and then training those that would become officers to lead them? Well, I think in in terms of military skills, initially there is not a lot of difference uh, between the two. Um, But the real difference lies in the extent to which the officers uh, are more literate, uh, more intelligent, uh, and the trainers can, once some basic military skills are in place, begin to educate them and to develop their leadership and and their command skills. And what's the success rate? How many trainees actually make it from selection? 
Uh, well, it varies, of course, um, depending on the, the raw material that you start each course with. Um, and for the Sierra Leone Armed Forces, of course, it's, it's, it's quite a small scale uh, of effort. Um, I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, sort of 30 to 80 uh, on, any, on, a, on a course. Um, but I'd say that on average, probably about one in three fall by the wayside. Mm. So what kind of advice would you offer to those training the Afghan soldiers now? Um, well, I would hesitate to, to offer advice to them, to be honest, uh, because the situation there is so very different, and the level of threat uh, and the nature of the tasks the Afghan officers will have to fulfill uh, is so very, very different to, to what the Sierra Leone Armed Forces uh, officers and soldiers face. But what do you make of this Afghan sandhurst the Prime Minister announced this week? Um, well, I, I think it's... Uh, I'm sure it's a very good idea. Um, I mean, I'm not sufficiently uh, knowledgeable and experienced in, in uh, the current situation in Afghanistan to, to comment in any depth. But uh, I know we have been doing uh, exactly the same uh, in Iraq for a few years now, uh, and I believe that that's been very successful. So I'm sure the model, uh, the model works, um, but obviously each situation is, is going to be very different. All right, Colonel Jamie Martin, thanks very much for your time today. Not at all, thank you. HMS York returns to Portsmouth on Friday at the end of a very eventful four months at sea. She's played a key role in rescuing foreign nationals from Libya as well as a trip to the Falklands as Argentina raises the pressure over the island's future. Next year, she's due to be decommissioned. Earlier, I spoke to HMS York's captain, Commander Simon Staley, and started by asking him about their unexpected trip to Libya. Believe it or not, that was probably one of the highlights of, uh, of the deployment for all of us. I think um, having worked and, and trained so hard to get the ship ready to deploy, uh, to be able to leave the UK and then be uh, tasked for live operations uh, and have to take the initiative and really pull together a team and prove to ourselves we can do it, um, was just what the military is all about. And, of course, it was an exciting time. It was right at the vanguard of the operations that were starting there. Um, we were doing the live kinetic uh, operations off of Tripoli initially, uh, and then, of course, we, we did um, a, a wonderful evacuation of those people uh, entitled from Benghazi. And presumably a first for many of your ship's company. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think that's, that's uh, one of the critical things. You know, our, um, our sister services have people who um, are frontline uh, in Afghanistan and many other areas around the world, um, and we forget that we get these new people joining and they haven't experienced that before, so there's a, an element of nerves there. But as soon as they've done something like that for the first time, um, they really mature very, very quickly. They realize they can do. There's a great confidence. And, of course, it just pulls together the real team spirit, which is exactly what uh, a ship's company uh, on, a, on a Navy warship are all about. And from there, it was off to the Falklands at what turned out to be a highly sensitive time. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, mean, I think the region is, and it was a second deployment for us in, in two years. And, uh, and last year was, uh, was, was probably quite operationally focused, the first time it had been for... Uh, at least a decade and so to arrive down this time where the politics it, it, there is a lot of sensitivity down in that region um, but again we, we go down there well prepared we've we, we read into what's going on we're down there to do a job which is to reassure the uh, the people of the Falkland Islands that the, the UK are there to support them and of course to act as that uh, deterrent against any any aggressor that may want to uh, inflict any any pain or damage on them. You've had a very active uh, few months now. What's the mood on board HMS York, given it's going to be decommissioned next year? Well, I don't think 
that really is, is playing a factor at the moment. I think, um, yeah, much like the other services, the, the Royal Navy, the people of the Royal Navy are extraordinarily proud of, of what we've got and, and what we do. And, and, and this five months where we have not only delivered uh, at the operational end that war fighting, demonstrating that, uh, we've also delivered the humanitarian um, side of, of what the forces do so well, but also the wider regional engagement. Um, and so as we start, we've come across the Atlantic, we've had a good trip across. People are on a professional high. They're on a high because they're about to see their families for the first time for uh, five months tomorrow. Uh, and then, of course, it, it's just uh, a few weeks leave, and then we're back, regenerate the ship before we're out again to do uh, operations thereafter. Really, you know, nothing starts running down until the last minute, uh, and the ship doesn't pay off until September next year. So I don't think there's any real concern at the moment on board. You come into Portsmouth later on, as you said. Um, what do you want to do? What have you missed the most? Well, do you know what? I Probably to a man, we'll all say we've missed fresh milk and British bread. <laughs> so behind that, of course, is our families, I must say. Um, but no, they're just some small things. Um, I, I think it's just having some time to ourselves. You know, on, on a warship, clearly, a 500 foot long, um, not a lot of privacy and, and space. Um, whilst we have access to computers and, and telephones, it's having that time uh, with our families in our own homes, being able to talk and do the things that a lot of people just take for granted that they do day in, day out. So I think everybody's looking forward to, to revisiting that. And uh, certainly the emotions on the jetty tomorrow on both sides, those on the jetty and those on the ship, will be extraordinarily high. It's, uh, it's something we all look forward to very much coming back from deployment. Commander Simon Staley, the captain of HMS York, speaking to me from the ship. Uh, Christopher, interesting that you said fresh milk and bread were the things that they missed the most. Is that what you found when you were... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Fresh milk and bread. And we put into America one day, and because uh, they brought all this bread along. It's horrible bread, in fact. It's white bread, and you, 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 know, you pinched it, and it stayed pinched. It was <laughs> wonderful stuff with, with proper butter. But the other thing is, right, you miss privacy. Mm. But the hardest part is getting home, and the first question you're asked is when you're going back. Um, but the other thing is actually getting, breaking into the routine. You know, uh, Mrs. Lee had been running the place, and mm. I came sort of strutting in, and I'd interrupted her routine. I'm That's sure, the difficult I'm sure one. she wouldn't complain you being around, Christopher. <laughs> and on that note, maybe we should leave it for this week. And now sport. <laughs> yes, that's it for this week. Thanks to all my guests and, of course, to uh, Christopher Lee and Mrs Lee, of course, if she's listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories we've covered and anything else you think we should be talking about. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. But for now, from me, Kate Chabo, thanks for listening and goodbye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.